Welcome to The Landscape, your show about America's parks and public lands. I'm Aaron Weiss at the Center for Western Priorities in Denver. And I'm Kate Gretzinger in Salt Lake City, Utah. Today, we are very excited to have author and podcaster and extremism expert Leah Satilli on the show. Leah is going to talk with us about the connections between the Bundy family standoffs that she covered in her podcast, Bundyville, and the January 6th insurrection, as well as her new book, which is a wild and tragic case out of Idaho, but let's not call it a true crime book, okay? I mean, it's true, and it's about crime, but, you know, genres and all, we're not calling it true crime. We'll get into why. Before we jump into that, though, let's do the news. So as Aaron predicted in our last episode, Joe Manchin finally pulled the climate rug out from under Joe Biden's feet, leaving him and the White House looking confused and unprepared. Now, this is obviously bad news for our climate. We could really use the kind of funding Biden and Democrats were fighting for to slow climate change and speed up the shift to renewable energy. But all is not lost. President Biden still has plenty of executive authority to get things moving on the climate front, like oil and gas leasing reform and public lands conservation, to name a few. In a speech this week, the president acknowledged that climate change is a, quote, clear and present danger and said he plans to take action. But he stopped short of declaring an official emergency. And we will in future episodes get into what kind of tools he has at his disposal. The president did announce a $2.3 billion investment in infrastructure to address the threats of climate change. That money will go to states. It includes funding for things like home air conditioners and weatherization, really uh, more coping with climate change than addressing it. He also announced plans to open up the Gulf of Mexico and parts of the East Coast to wind turbines, which is something President Trump had banned, presumably because he didn't want to see windmills off Mar-a-Lago. President Biden added that the White House will announce a number of executive actions to address climate change in the coming weeks. But a bunch of members of Congress have encouraged the president right now to turn on executive beast mode, as Senator Sheldon Whitehouse put it. And I I really like that framing. And I got to call it as we see it right here. This week's announcements were very piecemeal. They were nowhere close to that kind of bold beast mode presidential action. Leah Satilli is a journalist and author whose work focuses on religious extremism in the West. She's the host of the podcast Bundyville, which explores the family's standoffs with federal agents at their Bunkerville ranch in the Malheur Wildlife Refuge. Her new book about a Mormon couple who are suspected of murdering their children, titled When the Moon Turns to Blood, is out now. Leah, welcome to the landscape. Thanks for having me. All right, we will get to the book because I want to hear about how you stumbled into this wild story, but I do want to start with the Bundys and the pathway to January 6th. Uh, We just recently saw the January 6th committee hold its hearing about the Oath Keepers and extremist groups. We saw a former Oath Keeper propagandist, employee, blogger, whatever you want to call him, Jason Tatenhove. He testified about the group, his involvement, how he got in, how he got out. What was going through your mind as you watched this hearing in Congress? I was basically waiting for Bundy Ranch to get mentioned. And so, I, you know, it, it was funny because typically I would be at home watching these things, like glued to it, taking notes. But I was sitting in a coffee shop in Bozeman, Montana, 
watching this on headphones and waiting for these two, you know, former militia members to, to tell the committee, you know, what they knew. And it took a while. And then the first words out of Jason Van Tatenhoop's mouth was, well, it got started for me at Bundy Ranch in the Sugar Pine Mine standoff. And I just like, my hands went up in the air. I almost knocked the table over. Like people around me were like. <laughs> Boom, right off the top. Yeah. I was <laughs> just it like, is. it didn't even take any time for you to say something that I and other reporters on extremism in the West have been saying that these, you know, were not just public lands conflicts. They were so much more than that. And they were a testing ground for um, what people could get away with. How much of what happened on January 6th do you think was a result of the Bundys suffering basically zero consequences for the standoffs both in Nevada, Bunkerville in 2014, and then Malheur in 2016? They they walked on all of them. Yeah, I, I think that, I mean, that was a stunning thing to witness in court when they were acquitted here in Oregon. And then, you know, I think that every reporter that covered the trial in Oregon thought, man, they really got lucky on, on what happened there. They found some jurors that agreed with them that were able to sway the jury, but surely that's not going to happen again. And then to go to Las Vegas in 2018, 2018, I think is when the yeah. trial happened. And then a federal judge threw that case out saying that they prosecutors were omitting evidence that made the Bundys look good. I mean, it just felt like, what? How is this? They, they kept getting away with it. So, I mean, I think you could ask that question to a lot of people and they'd have a lot of answers. But I think for people who've covered the Bundy stuff so closely, like myself, it felt like those were seen by the Bundy family, by their followers far and wide as, a, as saying that they were right, that they were permitted to do that and they were permitted to point guns at the government. So sure, yeah, lots of the people who came spe specifically to Bundy Ranch and Malheur were there because they have these deep-seated beliefs about anti-government beliefs. So, um, you know, I, you know, the Bundys specifically were not at January 6th. Right. But plenty of their acolytes were. And so, yeah, I think that there's absolutely a direct line between all these things we've seen happening in the West and in that that insurrection. I think for a lot of people, the the Bundys and that whole maybe the whole storyline of anti-government extremism in the, in the West really laid low during the Trump years. There were not any, of course, big uh, incidents or standoffs while President Trump was in office. And in fact, you had President Trump pardon Dwight and Stephen Hammond, who were ostensibly the inspiration for, for Malheur. What was going on in that world, in the extremism, Oath Keepers, Three Percenters, then the rise of the Proud Boys? What was going on there during the Trump years? Well, I think that, you know, longtime extremism researchers will say that far right extremism thrives during times of Democratic presidencies. So on that regard, it wasn't completely, you know, unsurprising. It wasn't unsurprising that people would cool down during Trump. I think why they, why they cooled down, though, was that suddenly their belief systems were being shared by the Secretary of the Interior, by people being floated for the head of the BLM. Um, so it wasn't just that they were like, oh, a Republican is in office. It was 
that this extremist is in office and he is tapping other people with extremist ideologies for cabinet positions. So, um, so I think it's a true friendship or kinship. Yeah, exactly. And so I think that that certainly made it seem to members of the Oath Keepers in the West to, you know, people like Stuart Rhodes, the, the head of the Oath Keepers, like, you know, our ideas are being listened to. Um, so yeah, it did cool off in terms of of standoffs and things like that. But you started to see an embracing with, and, and I'm speaking as a Western reporter. So you start seeing an embracing of these groups on a, on a larger level, specifically when the pandemic happened and anti-government groups were just delivered a gift on, you know, on a platter to say, hey, you know, all these anti-government ideas we've been having, well, they're also making you wear a mask and they're going to make you get a shot. And so the pandemic functioned as a recruiting tool for those groups who were seen as as kind of bonkers, as kind of on, as on the fringe before. Suddenly people were aligning with them. And then, of course, in 2020, with the protests over racial injustice, there, those groups showed up in mass in Western cities and towns to say, if Antifa shows up in our town, we're going to protect you. So they, so they position themselves as sort of the, you know, the vanguard against uh, the radical left that Trump was spouting about from from his office. So, so yeah, I mean, the Trump years were great for far-right groups, specifically militias. So in a way, it was, if you had watched all those things happening when January 6th happened, it was kind of a no-duh for a lot of people who've been who've been seeing those groups recruiting so heavily. Mm. Um, Leah, I want to back up and um, go back to something you mentioned earlier, which is that you were just waiting for the Bundy Ranch to sort of come up at these hearings. Mm-hmm. Could you say a little bit more about the connection between the Bundy family and groups like the Oath Keepers and other far right groups, like, like are they're not just tangentially connected in their anti-federal government sentiment, right? There's sort of a deeper connection or a more um, uh, physical or like concrete connection um, than that. Yeah. So in the days preceding the Bundy Ranch standoff in 2014, Clive and Bundy got on YouTube, you know, with a far right propagandist who was aligned with militias who'd been who'd been present at Ferguson when the Oath Oath Keepers were there, um, had kind of cozied up as somebody who was a a journalist. And I'm using air quotes that your radio listeners can't can't see, but um, (laughs) So Clive and Buddy got on with him and said, you know, we're in a situation where we might have another Waco here. And, uh, you know, which is my hometown. Really? Wow. Sorry, I I had to jump in. We can we can come back to that. So, um, you know, we might have another Waco here. Uh, We've been protesting. Clive was very clear. I've been protesting the ownership of land by the federal government for years. I've done everything that I can. And now it's about time we call in the militia. So so he did. He called he called in the militia, potentially promising another Waco. And um, and and people came from around the West. And and that was three percenters. You know, we have the famous photos of Eric Parker uh, pointing a sniper rifle at, at the uh, federal agents that were there at Bundy Ranch. He was the three percenter. We have the Oath Keepers. I have talked to Oath Keepers from around the West that were there that were, you know, affiliated and kind of loosely affiliated. But people who went there 
and met other people. They networked at Bundy Ranch. They got ideas. They talked about battle plans. You know, specifically, I spoke to a guy who was there who got real fired up about the federal government and and tried to bomb a BLM building in Arizona. Um, so, wow. you know, these were ideas that all started at Bundy Ranch. So when Jason Van Tatenhove said, you know, it all started for me at Bundy Ranch, it was just like, well, of course it was, you know. You, you also remember the Oath Keepers are a Western-born organization. They're out of Montana. So these are, this is a lot of these, I mean, there's militias all around the country, but the ones who have been so proactive in pushing their anti-government agendas have been in the West. Since I just finished your book and it and it's talks a lot about Mormonism, um, do you, what do you see as sort of the religious leaning of these groups? I mean, the Bundys are very Mormon and um, or have their own version of the LDS faith that they sort of ascribe to. Um, but how much would you say LDS and Mormon beliefs sort of play into these militias' um, beliefs and efforts? I think it's a really good question. I would not say that I have encountered a ton of LDS militia members, but I certainly have encountered people who who consider themselves Christian, who are very motivated by this, this idea that they think that America should be a Christian nation. Specifically, um, the uh, Oath Keeper who I spoke to in Utah, who tried to bomb a, a federal building in Arizona, he was very fired up about uh, just Muslims in general. And so believing that America should be a Christian nation. um, So I would say they would be more connected in my mind with the rising Christian nationalism that we're seeing kind of pervading every part of our politics than the LDS church specifically. Now, as you saw in the book, the people that I wrote about and the Bundys sort of share this very fringe LDS beliefs having to do with, you know, the exceptionalism of Mormons saving the Constitution. I would say, you know, that's not a mainstream Mormon belief at all, but that is something shared with Christian nationalists is this idea that they are the ones to save the Constitution. Last question before we dive into the book, which is the racism that we have seen become more explicit along with some of this Christian nationalism, uh, it, folks like the, the Proud Boys and the Unite the Right rally that we we saw during the Trump years, back when during Bunkerville and Malheur, that was certainly not as explicit. I think a lot of people have forgotten that the media circus around Cliven kind of petered out the first time when he went on a crazy racist rant in front of, of TV cameras. But how much of this movement is either rooted in racism or just racism adjacent and you've got kind of strange bedfellows between anti-government folks and just explicit white supremacy? I think that's an excellent question. I think it's, it's I think it's one that a lot of extremism reporters are considering. I, I think you're right, Aaron, that, that people do kind of pave over that part of Cliven Bundy's story with this wild rant about black people being better off as slaves. You know, Slavery. Some, yeah. I mean, it was really disturbing. It yeah. was super. It was it was terrible. And I think at the time. People just were like, yeah, yeah, he's old, you know, and and kind of moved Mm -hmm. moved past it. But, um, you know, when I interviewed the Oath Keeper in Utah, you know, he was super racist and didn't think that Mm. he was. But I think that 
that if you are going to be a part of the far right right now, in this moment, post-2020, post-George Floyd, um, you are on board with some, some racist policies. So I think it's interesting because you see people sort of like, um, you know, gaming out, okay, why are people uh, invigorated by far right groups right now? Oh, it's the economy. Oh, it's this, it's that. I really think that racism is just at the center of everything that, you know, that it's that so much of the emboldenment of these groups post 2020 and the recruitment to them was because they were freaked out about, um, you know, black people saying, hey, we're sick, sick of getting shot by police, you know, so, so like the, you know, the blue lives flag that you see flown by militia groups, mm -hmm. but also by police officers. It's like there's a racist undertone to all of that. So I really think that, yeah, I think I think that racism is everything. I don't think that you could agree with Donald Trump. I don't think that you could agree with the right at this moment in time without agreeing with their racist ideologies. Mm -hmm. I think it's everything. Why do you think it's important that people see the connection between January 6th and public lands extremism? Because I think that there's, um, that was a, an excuse, you know, we could talk about, we could talk so much about Waco, you know, we could talk about Ruby Ridge and things like that. Those were really catalyzing to specific groups of people because they, they, it, it, it informed their entire worldview about the government. It, it gave them an excuse to dislike the government. You know, people who already disliked the government. Think about Waco. You think about Timothy McVeigh being there. And that was what made him bomb the, the Alfred P. Murrah building in Oklahoma City and killing 168 people. So there's connections. Um, I, I think with public lands, it's, it's like you see the Bundys talk about public lands but really, like what I felt really pleased with my own reporting was when I was able to sit there and ask Cliven and Ryan Bundy, like, does this all have to do with your religion? And they said, yeah, absolutely. Like, it almost seemed like it could have been anything. It was just that that hmm. was their their closest connection with the federal government was on public land. So you, you take that around the country and, and wherever people are connecting closely with the government telling them to do something then that's going to be their issue that informs their anti-government police system. So, yeah, I mean, I think that the public lands thing, obviously it's been, you know, this is sagebrush rebellion. This goes back decades and decades, but um, I think that ignoring those things, I often am really, you know, salty on Twitter about East coast media sort of not paying a, a ton of attention to these public lands conflicts, but I think that they were just such a perfect Petri dish for these groups to just breed and breed and breed and get bigger and try things and see what they could get away with and say, hey, we got away with this, that and the next thing. Now we can go try and do a 1776 there at the Capitol, which is exactly what they did. Hmm. Yeah, it's often written off as like, oh, it's just that wacky Western religious extremism, like niche yeah. subject. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. It's infuriating to me because I just think that it's, um, I don't know. I just think it's like, uh, uh, it's it seeing rural America as a monolith. Like it's like, oh, just, you know, those ranchers out there in their cowboy hats, just trying to make an honest living. It's just, it's, it, 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 it 
negates the complicated story of the West and its people and the amount of anger around public lands issues that is, you know, as fundamental to the American story as anything. Mm, Yeah. Well, I'm sure we could talk about this for another hour, but we won't subject our listeners to that. Um, um, Let's talk about your book, your new book that just came out, When the Moon Turns to Blood. Um, Leah, tell us how you decided to write on this subject. Honestly, I was a little surprised. I was thinking your first book would be about the Bundys. (laughs) Yeah, everybody did. Instead, we get a true crime thriller. Yeah. So, uh, it, it, which is, it, it's it's funny that you say that, because I definitely did try to write a book about the Bundys, but was told across the board by publishers, yeah, nobody wants to hear more about them. And so, so yeah, wow. you know, fun. Um, but I also was pretty conscious after the second season of Bundyville that I needed to be contributing to the conversation about the far right and not acting as a publicity arm for everything that the Bundys did. I think that sometimes when you cover a group so closely, like, I could tweet about every single thing that they say and do. And and I realized that I just, I want to be a more intelligent reporter than that. So, um, so I had been wanting to write a book for a while. I had kind of a few that I'd worked on and put stuck in the drawer and never looked at again. So they didn't keep my interest. But in late 2019, I heard about uh, these children, these two children that were missing in Idaho and their parents that were missing. and Nobody had any idea where they were. It was interesting to me because I've written a lot about missing people. So, you know, we have talked a lot about my work on extremism, but I do a ton of other journalism on on other topics. And I've I've written a lot about missing persons, missing kids. So I was kind of interested in that. But what kind of raised the flag for me was that someone said that they thought it might have something to do with the parents' fringe LDS belief system that would say where the kids were. And so I was like no way. Like, it can't be the same thing that the Bundys have told me about. Like, mm. so I kind of started all of your interests coming together. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was like, I'm sitting here in my office thinking like, all right, I'll do a little digging. I'll see if I can put together a magazine pitch like it could be interesting. But then it's like, pretty quickly, I found that there was a wealth of information by Chad Daybell, the missing, the missing stepfather, it turns out. And, um, and I guess we should stop here really quick for listeners and just clarify that Lori Vallow was the woman who's accused of killing her two children, and her husband is Chad Daybell, and he, he is also accused in the double murder. And Lori Vallow, the woman's father, had written these kind of long sovereign citizen these screeds that felt super familiar to me. And so then I was like, okay, hang on. I think that everybody's talking about this missing family, but they're missing this huge part of what is potentially informing what they believe and, and, um, and where they've gone. So it's kind of how it started for me. And then I just got really obsessed. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I can see why it's a really riveting story about some people going off the deep end in a way that is very extreme. Um, say a little bit more about the overlap between that that sovereign citizen movement and then you bring up the white horse prophecy which i was familiar with from bundyville in the book and i was like sort of excited to see that um that nexus could you say a little bit about how that how that sovereign citizen and then specifically the mormon sort of white horse prophecy um angle plays into uh this book yeah. So so when I did Bundyville, I talked about the White Horse Prophecy, which is this, 
you know, it's been described to me as like a Mormon urban legend. It is not accepted prophecy by the leadership of the church that says that, you know, in the future, at some point, the Constitution will be at the brink of ruin. It'll hang by a thread as fine as silk fiber. And the white horse, a.k.a. the Mormon people, will have to save it. So that's, you know, something that the Bundys believe. But, you know, again, the LDS leadership is like, that's not real. Don't talk about it. Don't think about it. So I kind of had it on my pin board as something that I thought was really interesting after Bundyville came out because I got a lot of emails from people that were like, yeah, I don't think you, I don't think this is as fringe as you think. Mm. Like I grew up hearing about this in my, in my ward or, you know, from my bishop or things like that. So I was like, oh, that's interesting. Like maybe there's a deeper thread of constitutionalism in the West than I even realized. So, um, so it comes up in my book um, when I sort of wondered, okay, are these people freaked out by all the things happening in the world? This is, you know, right before the pandemic started, you know, there's so much talk about Trump and the election and what could happen and, and, and um, that I just wondered, you know, maybe they too think that they are going to have to do something extreme for their religion and for the constitution. So where, what became like a critical reporting point for me was I dug out this book authored by Lori Vallis' father about, it's called- Dis- Dismantling how, the IRS or something. <laughs> how Americans dismantle the IRS. And so, I mean, it's, it's a very difficult read because it's like, you know, capitalized sovereign citizen, BS and yeah, yeah, all the good stuff. But, you know, I get to a line where he said the constitution is hanging by a thread. You know, it's, it's, it was just, he was mimicking the white horse prophecy. So I'm like, okay, so here's somebody who maybe grew up hearing this from her own father, who is publishing this thing on Amazon as his daughter and his grandchildren are missing. Um, And then it came up again with Chad Daybell's writing. So the, her husband, Lori Bellows, husband um, is this prolific author of LDS fiction, which was not something I even knew existed <laughs> before I wrote this book. Um, but I read a lot of that and where we he was talking a lot about the constitution through these fictional stories and how, you know, uh, the UN was invading and Russia was invading and um, the Mormons were the ones that were surviving though. So it just was like this literary exploration of the white horse prophecy. So yeah, you you know that you couldn't ever put the Bundys and Lori Vallow and Chad Daybell in the same room, but that to me shows like, oh, it's not just like militia guys and like people who want to point guns at the federal government that think this. It's like a lady who teaches Sunday school. It's a guy who's seen as like a very well respected LDS author. Um, you know, it's it's the White Horse prophecy taking like a suburban form. Mm. So that to me was like, oh, okay, well, then this is worth exploring Mm. a lot more. Um, Talk a little bit about how Lori Vallow, who is the the mother of the children who were murdered, um, how did she get radicalized through the church? Hmm. I, I think that's a great question. As far as my research is concerned, you know, way back to the 1950s, there has been this sort of undercurrent in the LDS church of people who are entertaining anti-government ideologies, um, who are, 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 are kind of 
dodging around the edges of things that the church would say are not okay to talk about in a religious context, they're braiding them together. So patriotism, they're braiding their patriotism together with their religious ideologies and things like that. That's been going on for a while. I mean, you can read the book to get into the like minutia of why that is. But for a long time, the LDS church has really, really tried to tamp that down. So like in the 90s, they were like doing mass excommunications of people that they thought might be survivalists or in militias or specifically people who were having study groups and wanted to like level up their faith. So like get something more than they were getting at church. So so to me, that's where you start seeing um, Lori Vallow kind of through time looking for something more she was a very faithful woman who her 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 faith was at the center of her life and um it just wasn't enough like she just wanted to be more close to her faith and obviously she started believing that she was like a character in the book of revelation and all these kind of wild wild ideas but i think it was that is that somehow she went from this sort of mainstream suburban mom and kind of dipped into that undercurrent that, that the church just can't really seem to, to get rid of. Well, I mean, so as I'm sitting here listening to this, my mind immediately goes to Lavoie Finicum. Yeah. Who similarly in, in 2015 writes a novel only by blood and suffering, regaining lost freedom uh, which of course ends up looking uh, like a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Right. Um, sorry, I jumped ahead of folks there. Lavoie Finnicum being uh, the Malheur occupier who ended up reaching for a gun and was killed uh, in that traffic stop as uh, as Emmon Bundy and company were trying to go take uh, cover with a, a sympathetic sheriff. I mean, to what extent are folks like this writing their own destinies in these kind of you know, prophetic novels imagining their own deaths, I guess, bleakly. Yeah. I mean, it's such a good, that's a really good shout to think of that. Finnicum, I think is such a complicated and tragic character, if I can call him that in the Bundy universe and that he was by all means, this sort of really kind of normal guy looking for something and then like radicalized super quickly after Bundy ranch. And then obviously is like a martyr went, for the went down right. that rabbit hole. Yeah. 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 I mean, yeah. Uh, I, I will never forget talking to his brother um, for, in, for Bundyville and just hearing sort of the confusion, but also the support that the family wanted to give him in death. And it was just a really complicated thing, but you know, in the, in, in my book, I really dive deeply into the, the work of Chad Daybell. So it became my like pad pandemic project while people were making sourdough bread. I was reading book after book after book written by Chad Daybell, seeing that with each pro progressive book, he would sort of say, you know, these ideas that I said in my last book, they actually came true. And I'm not trying to say I'm a prophet or anything, but that is kind of weird. And then like in the next mm. book, he was just getting more and more bold because he was getting more and more readers that were saying, I like what you're saying about the end of the world. Like, this is interesting. He was gaining something of a celebrity off of that, probably making some money off of it too. So, so yeah, I think that, you know, it felt like I was reading those books thinking that there might be an answer, you know, having known Finnicum's story, having known the Bundys and their writings, like that, that maybe there was a story there. And what's crazy is that in one of Daybell's books, he 
says, you know, the people are the the people who are going to be a part of the 144,000 prophesied in the book of Revelation that are going to be like the chosen people during the second coming. They're not going to Salt Lake City anymore. They're going to Rexburg, Idaho. And there they're mm. going to baptize people in a pond and they're all going to wear white and things like that. Well, Daybell moved a ton of, you know, was trying to move a ton of people to Rexburg. The children that were eventually found in this case dead, you know, they were found in those locations. Mm. So like, that stuff, and this is all in the very beginning of the book, so it's not like super spoilery, but um, no big know, spoilers here. Yeah, it's a yeah. It is, yeah. I think I think that you're right. So you had just you had sort of been talking about Lori and in the Mormon faith, um, and how <laughs> there are all these sort of sub spinoff groups of Mormonism that are like mm-hmm. pretty radical, like the prepper groups, or like I think she kind of gets into this like energy working group um yes. with spirits. Yeah. I won't say any more about that. But um but do you think that there's something inherent about Mormonism um that makes there that makes um LDS folks sort of susceptible to these pretty intense conspiracies or do you think that that's not a fair um line to draw i think that there is absolutely a logical connection between the founding of the church and this kind of new agey uh culture that that definitely plays a part in the valo daybell story you know if you look to the founding of the church joseph smith was someone who uh, you know, was a treasure hunter. He looked into a hat to sort of like see the uh, see the future. He was a scryer. Like he he was very much engaged in the new age practices of the day. And those things contributed to the founding of the church. You know, for people who don't know, the story is that he unearthed these golden tablets written in some sort of ancient language that only he could read. And, um, you know, treasure hunting and like seeing things, visions, that is like the beginning of the LDS church. So so it, it is, I think, pretty logical that within this undercurrent we're talking about, this fringe, um, there are people who definitely want to adopt new agey practices in order to like level up their faith. So like you bring up energy work, you know, that is something that is the church has been really pretty clear like that's not a part of our faith but i always thought that was odd but clearly it's come up enough that people are like well maybe energy work has something to do with me leveling up my faith so yeah that all that kind of i think contributes hmm. to the culture yeah go ahead and now i'll just note that this is not necessarily unique to LDS culture. You go back to the 90s and the wild popularity of the Left Behind series of of books and movies of post-apocalyptic fantasies of what happens after after the rapture. And is that you know is that just a religious take on say more mainstream, whether it's you know World War Z zombie novels or Cormac McCarthy, The Road, post-apocalyptic novels. This is a genre that is is well-established both in and out of religious circles. Uh, but in some cases here, obviously, there are folks who then take that fiction uh, to to very dark places. Yeah, I think, I mean, and, and I was surprised when I was reporting the second season of Bundyville to see the logical path of the story was understanding that there were 
you know, non-LDS Christian communities that really wanted to see the country collapse so they could then reform it in their image. So yeah, it's certainly not specific to, uh, to LDS, but I think that the, the, you know, one of the themes of the book that was really interesting to me was just digging deeper into that cultural apocalypticism and like what causes somebody to then, you know, you can believe the world is going to end, but like go about your life. Like, but these were folks that were like, oh, the world's ending. And so we, you know, potentially they're accused of killing people because of those beliefs. Um, Leah, I saw on Twitter recently that that well, you you wrote that so, a tweet that said some authors had warned you against sort of getting boxed into the true crime genre um, <laughs> because it would make your book um, it would be it would it would make reviewers and whatnot take your book less seriously. And right. I'm wondering if you could tell us like why isn't why shouldn't people view your book as true crime? What pushes it past the basic um, true crime genre? Yeah, I mean, so I've been a journalist for just edging on 20 years now. And I know that um, I know what makes a good story. You know, I know what makes a good narrative. I think the Val Daybell story, you know, on its own without any reporting is like a, the plot of like a crazy Coen brothers movie. Like it's just weird. It's crazy. There are things that happen that you're just like, I cannot believe that that happened. So it was a good story on its own, but I'm, I, wanted to almost like I've used the comparison before when you're like feeding a baby and you have to like zoom in the vegetables like loom like an airplane kind of thing like that's kind of what I feel like I'm doing with this book is it like I there is the the zoomy you know action of the true crime narrative but like if you chew on the the food what you're going to get is a deeper understanding about religious extremism in America right now that the Val and Daybell were unique in many ways, but they were also symptom. They didn't come up with these ideas on their own. They had to get these ideas somewhere. And so that that's what this is. It's about much more than that. Well, they were part of the, these communities that you talk a lot about in the book, these, uh, these online communities and also in person groups. Um, I, one thing that struck me as interesting and actually connects back to what we were talking about is that this group, the, um, oh my gosh, I wrote it down, Avow. Um, another oh, shoot, voice of warning. Yes. Another and voice of warning. Thank you. Yeah. It's like this online forum for preppers, and they were like going nuts around the 2020 election when when Biden won, um, or even before Biden won. Um, where do what what connections do you see between this this sort of prepper um, Mormon LDS group and January 6th? Hmm. Well, I think that's a good question. I'm not sure there's a direct connection. I think what made me so interested in in Avow was I was trying to understand how this lady in Arizona, Lori, and this guy in Idaho, how what what possible ecosystem would allow those two people to meet and then have the same ideas and then do, you know, go forth and do do what it is they're accused of doing. Um so, so I kind of really embedded down into a vow as a reporting strategy to try and understand like what the people around them or the culture around them might have been talking about. Um, so, so that you know, it, I think it's important to say another voice of warning is very much like it's very popular with people 
who are LDS, who are on the LDS fringe. So because so much of the book was done during the pandemic, it was like I couldn't go to these conferences that they would usually have. This was kind of my way of trying to understand, you know, who's involved in this and that sort of thing. So I think the connection to January 6th is just an understanding that there are a lot of people who believe what these people believe to whatever extent, you know, uh, are they murderous? Absolutely not. You know, there are people on that site that are just revolted by the fact that they had embraced Chad Daybell and he sort of came from their community. But you will see a ton of support mm -hmm. for Trump on there. You know, they said that martial law was going to happen. I mean, I can't even count the number of times they said martial law would happen after Biden was elected. So, mm -hmm. you know, and you don't see people on that site saying January 6th was an insurrection. Uh, you know, they, they generally yeah. support it. <laughs> A peaceful protest, right? Yeah, yeah, right. right yeah, they just went through a walk. Uh, went for a walk through the Capitol. That's what they like to say. <laughs> With while, while building yeah. gallows for the yeah, vice right. president of the United States. Normal right? thing. Uh, last question for you, Leah. What what's next for you? Obviously, you got a, you got a book tour going here. Do you know what what your next project's going to be? Well, I think that um, sort of, you know, on the conversation we had earlier about the Bundys, like I, I, you know, when things like the January 6th hearings happen and there's like an opportunity for me to be like, hey, we should have paid attention to the Bundys, like I will do that. But to me, any work that I do on extremism has to kind of push the conversation forward. So um, right now I have a podcast that I think is coming out in September that has to do with environmental extremism, which is something that I think is mm. very interesting and very misunderstood and misdefined. So um, so that'll be coming out. And then, uh, yeah, I'm going to continue to do some work on um, how extremism pervades the left, um, which I think is a very difficult topic to understand, but something I need a new challenge. Yeah. So I think that's where I'm going. So, wow. Yeah. I can't can't wait to hear it. That's exciting. Yeah, gonna gonna get the Leah Satilli treatment on the left. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think the unfortunate thing is that, like, when you go far enough left, it really just kind of mimics the far right. So that's it's really it, it, just that. it all comes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it yeah. it all comes full circle. And and you know, you you worked with OPB on on Bundyville. Their their work on Timber Wars, similarly great podcast series that I, I just, you know, binged in, in one long drive, uh, across forests in, in Colorado. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. And they had, uh, they put out a great podcast about the, um, uh, Portland protests too, and sort of the like anarchist yeah. circles and things like that. So yeah, OPB, yeah. OPB is the best. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. We got to go listen to that. Well, Leah Satilli, uh, the book is, ah, you see, I had the book title. When here. the moon turns to blood. There we go. Thank you so much for your time, Leah. Really appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, thanks to you both. I really appreciate it. Senators Michael Bennett and John Hagenluber from Colorado introduced legislation last week to designate the Dolores River Canyon in southwest Colorado as a national conservation area. The Dolores River is famous among rafters who flock to it whenever it's flowing high enough to put a boat in. But that's becoming extremely rare as the river is increasingly strained by climate change and agriculture. While the bill wouldn't put any more water in the river, it does ban new mining, new oil and gas leases, dams and new roads, and commercial timber harvesting on more than 68,000 acres of federal public land along the River Canyon. And I think we can agree that's something to celebrate. 
certainly is, and fingers crossed that that bill goes somewhere, or maybe at some point we see some of that executive beast mode. <laughs> yeah. All right, that is it for this episode. As always, if you've got something to say to us or just want to let us know how much you love hearing our voices in your car every morning, email us, podcast at westernpriorities.org. We will link to Leah Satilli's op-ed in Slate about the Bundy connections to January 6th, as well as her book, When the Moon Turns to Blood. That's all in the show notes for you. Thanks so much to Leah for taking time to talk to us about religious and public lands extremism. And thank you for listening to The Landscape. 